0: Sometimes when you're preaching, there's just no good way to put the pieces together, all right? So, for example, this morning is Mother's Day, and we're preaching on the Antichrist. (laughs) I know, yeah, right? So we probably should pray before we get started. What do you think? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for my friends and good sense of humor. Lord, we would lift these families up to you. It has been a stunning week in terms of impact, number of us are reeling from the news we've gotten, trying to put the pieces together, trying to adjust to the new normal. And uh, for them, it's very difficult. And we would stand in the gap for them. We would stay alongside them and we would pray for them. And we would ask that you would give a greater grace at this moment that they've never had before. May they sense not only your presence, and they also sense your comfort. And we seek you for that. We ask for them to see your hand in the midst of even what is difficult loss. And Lord, we thank you in in some incredible ways where you've preserved uh, people and what could have been a, a tragic situation has actually turned out uh, really positive. So we, that feels like a, a bullet whizzing by our heads. And so, in a lot of ways, we're incredibly grateful because it could be a completely different week and completely different news than. What we have, and so as we come this morning, Lord, uh, we're going to talk about what Paul laid out. And you understand history and timing, and uh, the depth of this way better than any of us do in this room. And we ask that you would ignite in your spirit where you want us to track and think, and how you want to capture our attention, capture us with you. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. So take your Bibles. Turn to Second Thessalonians. We, if you're newer visiting this morning. We're, we did a study in First Thessalonians uh, before Easter, and then it just seemed like a very natural logic to shift to Second Thessalonians because uh, there was a follow-up to it. So we've started; we're a couple messages in, and um, you can go to the website and catch up with some of the other messages that were um, already done if you want to, and w- hope you enjoy that. So starting Second Thessalonians, and we're starting here with verses three and four. Same verses we worked off of last week. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. He's talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, They had been afraid. They had been given some false teaching. Uh, a, A fake letter had gone out that was in Paul's name. And so they were all upset. First they thought their loved ones who had died would miss the day of the Lord. And then they thought that they would miss the day of the Lord. So they were kind of upside down in that. And Paul's writing to calm them. And he says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Last week we talked about and spent the message the majority of the time on uh, the rebellion. And many people think when it's a rebellion, it's non-believers uh, rebelling against God or against the church. What we saw in the rebellion, it was actually the apostasy of the church. Uh, f- pretty scary. Uh, not easy to preach through. Uh, most people don't realize that, but it's talking about the falling away of those who claim Christ under the pressure that gets exuded in a culture. And what we said is the culture is able to exude incredible pressure. And uh, that you have to have this dialed in before it hits. But the second sign that Paul said would reveal itself before the day of the Lord, is this man of lawlessness. Uh, In some of your translations it will say man of sin. And this person um, has quite a uh, repertoire and reputation within the pages of Scripture. He goes by a lot of names. And what I want to say is when, when Scripture uses names, uh, names in scripture really matter. They really mean something. You can look up the etymology of them and the background of them and what those names stand for. And so today we're going to look at some of these names and know that uh, these are really important. They're trying to describe something. So if we look at the names of this man of lawlessness, that title, uh, Greek is anomus. Uh, A is no and nomus is law. And so what it means is no law. And And the idea there is that this is a person who destroys law, and creates a new law unto himself, and so he is uh, dis- intent on wiping out. Uh, it says he wants to change the dates, the times, the seasons. He wants to realter how we understand our calendars work. He wants to realter how we understand history works. He wants to realter how we understand law to work. And so he's, a, he's called a man of lawlessness. In other words, his goal is to shred uh, law and how law holds culture and society together. The second name, uh, son of destruction, you might be more familiar with it as son of perdition. Right? Uh, there is another son of perdition in scripture that you'd be familiar with. His name is Judas Iscariot. Said that Judas was a son of perdition. Literally means a son of hell. In other words, uh, we talk about hell. Many people say hell is in a real place. Scripture thinks it is. And there's a lot of stuff that comes out of hell. And in this case right here, not very good stuff. This person coming out will be the overflowing or the outflowing of what is the heart and soul and spirit of hell. And uh, he will be called in other places the Antichrist. The other thing it says here is that he's a blasphemer. And a blasphemer is simply one. If you want to think of what's blasphemy, it's chucking stuff back in God's face. Does that make sense? You just throw it back at God and rant and rail against God. Uh, the ultimate expression is that He proclaims Himself to be God, and so He 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 rants and raves that Jesus isn't the Christ. There never was a God. Um, all these kind of things. Scripture isn't Scripture. He rants and rails against those kind of things because he knows what those uh, stand for, and he knows the pressure that they have against him. Now, when Paul's using these names, when, in other words, we make this list here, and these descriptions, he's not operating out of a vacuum. Okay? Paul, uh, we, we need to remember, Paul was an eminent Jewish scholar who studied under Gamil. And Gamal, uh, if you've never looked him up, or you see him in Acts very briefly, and kind of, he was the guy, remember, said, hey, They put the apostles outside and he says, look, if this is from man, it's really not going to go anywhere anyway. So, you know, let it alone. If this is from God, you aren't going to be able to stop it even if you try. So just let them be. All right. That was Gamil. And that's kind of all we know about him. But he is in uh, Jewish history. He is one of seven great rabbis that were called the teachers of light. In other words, there were a lot of rabbis, but there was only seven that got to the status of being uh, carried the title uh, uh, teacher of light. And so Gamil is one of these and uh, one of these great seven teachers throughout the history of Israel. So just think back, you know, Moses forward um, that uh, Paul studied under. So he uh, was his apprentice and, and therefore he would have been very aware of all the caricatures that uh, are taking place, for example, in Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. The other thing you have to factor in with Paul is that he was given exceedingly great visions. It says he was caught up uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, if you want to look there sometimes, he was caught up into heaven, and he talks about this person, and it's obviously an autobiographical comment as he's talking, uh, but he was given visions of which no man is permitted to even talk about. So what he saw, what what took place, Uh, We know know that it was so uh, heady that God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble so that he wouldn't get arrogant by the very things he had seen. And so Paul not only had a great historical grasp of this man of lawlessness, but he also had um, uh, the uh, vision type thing of meeting the resurrected Christ and Jesus telling him how some of this would play out and how much he'd get to suffer for it. So be careful if you ask for a vision, all right? Let me give you a picture of one of these. One of these, uh, you guys didn't get that, did you? No, it's Mother's Day. Okay, here we go. Um, Isaiah 14 is one of these kind of what they call telescoping passages. It starts out talking about one person and then telescopes uh, to another. These are called the Great I Will Passages. And it's telling you, it says, How you have fallen from heaven that part's not on the screen. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, or son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. In other words, talking about someone here who has devastated the earth. And it says, You set in your heart, and these are called the five great I wills, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly of the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, what you're seeing here is a mutiny, a rebellion. I will usurp. I will take over. I will replace the one sitting on the clouds of the high, and I will replace him. That is the spirit of this person. And both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 48 is another passage where it starts out talking about these earthly kings and then you can tell it's talking about someone else. When they're talking about this historical character and then they project to the other person, this passage depicts Satan's original revolt from heaven. In other words, you can see what got him cast out of heaven. The original fall was not Adam and Eve. The original fall, we need to be clear in our thinking on this, was Satan getting cast out of heaven. The second fall happened when Adam and Eve got cast out of the Garden of Eden. So there's two falls, a heavenly one and then an earthly one. And um, what you find is that this was his attitude. And when we come to the end of history, he has not given up on that idea and he comes back on it with a vengeance. you think he'd learn. you think he'd know better, right? But he is full of spite. He is full of malice. Uh, just know Satan does not play fair. He really doesn't care about you. He really doesn't care about your problems. He really doesn't care about your piddly problems. He really uh, despises you. He can't stand you. You tick him off royally because he knows that he can no longer have his spot, that that's been forfeited. What really ticks him off is God's going to give the spot he formerly had to worms like you. And it galls him to death. All right, And so he is Filled with animosity and spite. He doesn't care. He doesn't get it. He just doesn't care. Nobody else gets it either. So if you sense spiritual warfare in life trying to knock you sideways, it's real. It comes from a real person. Um, We can see this kind of attitude reflected in some of the other names that are used for him in Scripture. Uh, Here's a couple other ones. In Daniel, he's called the little horn. And the little horn means there's a number of powerful kingdoms that are pictured. And then this little kingdom pops up. It seems... Kind of insignificant. But then this little kingdom starts overthrowing these other kingdoms and you start to realize that um, it's a, a force to be reckoned with. And the name we're familiar with, used all the time, is Antichrist. Antichrist is not found in Revelation. Most people think that's where it comes from. It's not. It's found in First and Second John, the epistles. That's where John writes about the Antichrist. In Revelation, uh, he's called the beast. In Daniel's vision, the beast... Daniel says that this beast was exceedingly terrifying and that um, uh, he was frightening in his strength. And uh, the question is, um, wow, who is this guy, this this man of lawlessness? So these names, these passages, all describe the efforts of this person, this, this man of lawlessness, to take over the world and demand that he be worshipped as God. Now for a long time we sat back and went, yeah, okay, that kind of sounds mythological because like, how does that actually happen, right? I mean, how, how could that potentially take place? Well, how does this little horn um, overthrow governments? You know, the, the speculation and postulating of this has been endless, right? Uh, many of you grew up uh, in the 70s, the late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, right? It hit the, and everybody went, Writing kind of deal, and, uh, and it's gone on even since, and so a lot of people are like, ah, I give up on that, I don't want to think about it anymore, but I want to suggest something that might trip your brain out this morning, all right? We're now living in the day and age when technology that is emerging is now being able to give a glimpse of how some of this stuff could actually happen. Um, I was reading this week up in the office, and I found this article on MSN written by Kim Stolkneck. Not that everything on MSN is reliable, but this article is written by a guy named Kim Stalkneck. I like that name, German name, Stolkneck, right? And, uh, and the uh, article is called Quantum Computers Will Make Your Laptop Look Like an Acobus, Right? Abacus is the little bead thing, right? Abacus, Abacus there we go, can't even say it right. <laughs> all right, thank you, all right? Um, stop with me and just think with me for a few minutes on this topic. Okay, in the article, he states this. Listen to this. He says, The race to make the first quantum computer is becoming as important as the race 75 years ago to develop the first nuke, nuclear bomb. Remember that? Remember the history of that? Los Alamos and World War II and, and that kind. We just celebrated 70 years on that if you were watching uh, today. He says, The technology will make the microprocessor in your laptop seem as sophisticated as a booger. His words, not mine, right? He says it's literally going to be, he said, the best way I can picture is it like you're riding a horse and you get off the horse and you get into a jet fighter pilot, right, and take off. He said that's the difference of what we're talking about is that it will be an absolute uh, changer of the game. Let me try to briefly describe this to you Um Quantum computers are enormously complex, and I would not even begin to pretend I can't even handle my computer or my phone on this. But here's what he says in the article. If you want to get a picture of what this is like, uh, what a normal computer, even a supercomputer, a silicon-based computer, does today is like we understand it. If you want to look something up, you go to Google, you type it in, and then it will search through some files, and it will find what you're looking for. He says, the way to imagine that is, uh, he says, think of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember those? Nobody even used those anymore, right? He says, if you wanted to find a certain X item in Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, if you gave that to a computer, what the computer would do is start from the front page and start flipping pages, right? And it, Now, it would do it fairly rapidly, but it would flip page by page. And then eventually, when it gets to the spot where it finds the X that you're looking for, it goes ding, and it brings it up on the screen. He says what a quantum computer does is takes the Encyclopedia Britannica, lays all the pages out at the same time, looks at them at the same time, finds the X and says, bing, there you go. He says it's a completely different. We're talking about parallel universes here and all kinds of things that they're working with. But it it is something that the physicists are chasing with Uh, Like a banshee, okay? They are going after this like it's going on style. And one of the questions would be, well, why are they? Why is this such a big thing? What are they? uh, What are they trying to? uh, Why are they trying to get this? Um, Stocknick says it's because a quantum computer does what a, a what we would consider a regular computer cannot do. He says so. Here's how this would work. He says what a quantum computer can do because it runs off a parallel unit, it can create, um, and what's the word he uses here, indestructible encryption. In other words, you can't track the encryption because it's not in one, you can't run down one, it's in multiple phases or multiple universes. And he says the other thing is that uh, it is also able to unlock any existing computer security as easily as you unzip your fly. Again, his words, not mine. Okay. All right. He says, we are now entering an era of cyber war. He says, so imagine how power um, might shift. Think about how power would shift if one country gets the ability to invade another country's computer systems. Right? While putting up the ultimate computer defenses. Think about that. You no longer have to invade the country. You don't have to fire guns, you don't have to use bombs, you don't have to use the CIA, the FBI, or any of that kind of stuff. You just take your computer, shut all theirs down, and they can't get through your encryption, and you've got it. What would that look like? Well, for example, right now, one of the things that keeps things reasonably at bay in our world is uh, the Navy. And the Navy has these things called aircraft carriers. Sorry, Walt, I know the Army's got to deal with it. All right? um, but it's the Navy. We have aircraft carriers, and those aircraft carriers literally have more firepower than most nations have on one ship. And they are strategically stationed throughout the world with our nuclear subs. All right? And they keep what we call the balance of power. Right? You may have read about uh, China now is creating this whole new missile and this whole new fleet Of ships and that kind of stuff. So um, what he says is if you have a quantum computer, you just take over the aircraft carrier because you control and shut down all its computers. They cannot run if their computers don't work. Think about a person, you know, as as we're, as we're wrestling. Well, first of all, um, who's in the race for this? Um, UK, Great Britain, China, Russia, Australia, Netherlands, obviously us. But here's another key about quantum computers that's very, very different and a game changer is that um, it's not only governments who are involved, but some key, some very secretive technology companies are also chasing this. Some are more public ones, like we know IBM, Google, and Microsoft are in the race as well. Why Why would they be in the race? Well, think about it. If Microsoft gets a quantum computer, they can take Google and IBM and go... Right? You're talking about tremendous economic superiority in a system where you can shut the thing down. And so there's a lot of people chasing this is what I'm trying to say. Now, the article states that quantum computers are about 15 to 20 years away at present date. But the author says, but the breakthroughs are coming at an astonishing pace with that many people aiming uh, towards it. And the idea here is... Why it's so fast and furious and ferocious is because the first one in the pool wins, right? The first one to get one, the first one that gets one that's functioning suddenly has superiority, much like the United States of America had superiority because we were the first ones with the nuclear bomb. We could call the shots because we could tell people you can't do that, all right? So there's enormous incentive to reach that goal. Now, do you think that someone who would have intentions on taking over the world and forming a one world government would have an interest in this right Daniel says this last beast was exceedingly terrifying and strong and this would lend insight into how this could possibly so now tie this whole computing thing uh, quantum computers with you know the computing number 666 and you really have some material for another novel, right? But that's not the point this morning. The point this morning is also not to scare you, and sorry for a you know, major bummer on Mother's Day, you all right? But the point is that th- this is ca- happening right now. Now, there is a positive side to this. You're going, really? What? Let me tell you what the positive side is. This is man's stuff. This is what man is creating. And if you know anything about theology and theologians over the years... What they have said consistently is all man is doing is discovering God's footprints. In other words, as we develop new things, as we find new things, we simply are going where God went a long time ago. All right? And why that's exciting is because a lot of us this morning are going, wow, I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to get a handle on God knows who I am. I, Steve, when you talk about God loves me, yeah, I'm sure he does i I just can't figure out in my head how that works i can't I can't figure out how I could possibly be significant to Jesus when there's six billion other people and I mean realistically, look, I know okay, I'm a nice person, but I'm not that great. I'm not that big guns, I'm never gonna be. I'm never even going to have five seconds of fame, let alone 15 seconds of fame. Nobody's even going to know, and I'm going to die. Will there be anybody there? I really don't carry any kind of cloud. so why would Jesus even notice me? Now, don't tell me you haven't had those thoughts. I know you have, right? Here's a great way to look at this. If quantum computers are chasing after God's footprints, then what it tells you is this. God does not look at the world, start with the East Coast, right? You have an East Coast bias. Oh, come on, you guys, wake up. Hello. Golly, get out of the mud here. And he doesn't start with the East Coast and start flipping one person at the time. Okay, now he's on the Jersey Shore and then he finally gets to Pennsylvania. And somewhere later, years later, he'll get to the West Coast and he might actually get to your neighborhood. But there's a lot of people in your neighborhood too. So he's still turning pages and he hasn't got there yet, but just be faithful and he'll finally get there. That's the picture most of us have. Think in terms of quantum computers. It's all parallel universe. He sees you all at the same time. He doesn't have to flip pages, right? He is the ultimate quantum computer. He doesn't have wiring. He doesn't need electricity. He doesn't need to have any of that techno-gizzo-geek stuff that I don't know anything about, right? He can see us all at the same time and check in on all at the same time. Yes, he knows your name. Okay? He knows who you are. He knows where you live. You've been designed to live where you live at a time such as this. Why? Because he's way beyond anything of a quantum computer. All right? And that also means when the Holy Spirit operates, and we'll see this a little later, the Holy Spirit operates the same way. It doesn't have to run to Bothell and then run to Mill Creek. And then, oh my goodness, there's, there's a disturbance over in the Highlands, so I better scoot over there. Well, I better hit Snohomish too. And you know, three weeks later, he can show up in Linwood no, no, no. He's there. Okay, He's there. So he sees you. He knows you. He's not overwhelmed by it. Yes, he's tracking six billion people. Okay, If he can create ultimate billions of solar systems, do you think six billion are hard to track? No. He tracks the whole thing. So that's the positive side of it. And that's what uh, Paul is trying to encourage them with. Now, because it's kind of odd here, Paul is using these two great counterweights, the rebellion, which is not a great thing, and this man of lawlessness, which is not a great thing, to actually encourage the Thessalonian church that the day of the Lord hasn't happened. (laughs) Right? Hey, it's not bad yet, so don't worry, you haven't missed it. Right? That's kind of of the tack he's taking here. Then he goes on to something that's uh, significant and important for us. He talks about the restrainer. He says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you about these things? And you know what is restraining him. This is the man of lawlessness. You know what's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is out of the way. Uh, Again, now, as I said last week, when he says, don't you remember what I told you? I'm going, no, I don't remember what you told him. Give me the transcript, right? I don't want cliff notes at this point. It's like, Give me what was it? He actually told them. Oh, I would love to be a little mouse sitting there listening to the whole, so I could come back and say, "Ah, oh, this is what Paul said, and here's what he's remembering." Right? So I'm like, ah, oh, wish I had that. Lord wants everyone to know that He's in control of history, and Satan nor his henchmen are not. Right, that's what He's saying here. When He's talking, when Paul's talking about these things, He says, "Look, it is not about." The rebellion, And it is not about the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. It is about the restrainer. And the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. The restrainer is the one who says, not yet. There have been a number of, I believe through history, what I'd call artificial burps, where Satan has tried to... Uh, tip the timing in his favor and come at a time when it was advantageous for him and not for God. And God stopped them. Any of you remember back in the 80s when full-page ads were taken um, out in the L.A. Times announcing the coming of the great new leader and Messiah? You remember reading those? No, everybody's too young. Oh, you liars. Okay, here we go. Come on! Right? Remember that? And there was this frantic within the church oh my goodness this is going to happen right um and it didn't i mean poof, nothing not a whisper not everyone what was that all about and i believe the holy spirit just shut that whole thing down said no 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 you don't run the rules you don't run the timing god runs the timing i run the timing i'll determine when the right time for you to be revealed is not you And you have this immense battle going on in the spiritual realms where that is taking place. What holds all of history in check is actually a who, not a what. It's the Holy Spirit. He is the resistor or the restrainer in this passage. And what he's saying again is nothing can happen unless God steps out of the way Removing his Holy Spirit so that the man of lawlessness and his schemes can be revealed. In other words, it's on God's timetable. It's on his clock. He's got that map. So it's an issue of timing. And if timing is everything, then timing rests in the will and the plan of God. And that's why Paul's uh, next week, we're going to look at what Paul tells the Thessalonian church to do as a result of this. And it's pretty profound, and we'll, we'll look at that. But he's saying, totally throw all your eggs into Jesus' basket, not the other way around. The problem is, from our perspective, it doesn't appear that way at all. It looks, most of the time, like God's doing nothing. And it looks like uh, nothing's happening in the world that's good. And like, w- w- when's God going to wake up and actually do something? And I have news for you, God is not asleep. He is very aware of what's going on. And whether we see it or not really doesn't determine a whole lot. Okay? Our eyes are not good indicators. My eyes, I can't see anyway. so right, They're not good indicators of what's really going on. And in this case, that's really true when it comes to spiritual things. But when it does happen, when the Holy Spirit is pulled out of the way, which if you think things are bad now and you think sin is bad now, when that happens... There's no longer a restrainer on it. Now it can run amok the way it's always wanted to run amok and the results will be absolutely horrific. It says, when that comes to timing, the whole, God will pull the trigger and then the lawless one will be revealed. And when he's revealed, it says, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is an absolutely astonishing sentence. It's an amazing deal. It is, it, You know, if true brilliance is to take really, really complicated things and reduce them down to simplicity so a four-year-old can understand them, this, Paul's absolute pure genius right here. Okay. He takes, if you think about it, in one sentence, half the book of Daniel, three-quarters of the book of Revelation, and most of what we know in history, and distills it down into one sentence. He says, you want to know how it's all going to roll out? timing the history of the world's in God's hands and God's kept the world the way it is and has been recruiting people to his kingdom all this time but there's going to come a time when he's going to pull his spirit out when he does the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed when the man of lawlessness is revealed Jesus is going to come back and slay him with the breath of his mouth end of story game over right yeah woohoo but, here's the thing, that's not just, when we think of the day of the Lord, it's not one event like that. It's a series of events that roll into each other and cascade and telescope into each other. And so, this is distilling some incredibly important and complicated things. But, the essence is the overall battle and outcome are never in doubt. What Jesus started at the cross is now finished at His appearing. Amen? Church? Amen. Amen. Right? All right. Then he says this, the coming of the lawless one, we we have to pay attention to this part because it plays into next week. The coming of the lawless one, in other words, what will it be like when he actually shows up, this man of sin, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. In other words, Satan is a counterfeiter. He wants to counterfeit Jesus' miracles. He wants to counterfeit uh, Jesus' sayings. He wants to uh, tip it so that people think he's Jesus and there is no Jesus, Said, and with all wicked deception, right, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. A lot of people say, see, that's it. That's, see, that's exactly what, what I don't like about the church. That's exactly what I don't like about the Bible. God's got favorites. He picks some he likes, he doesn't like the other ones, they're just dust. I refuse to worship a God like that. Let's look at that a little bit and look into it. Even though what we said before is true, that it's on God's timetable and God's in control, this verse reveals that Satan is extremely good at deceiving people. You may have noticed that in your life once or twice. He's an incredibly subtle good liar. He is very good at deception. He is very good at the f- f- and flipping, all right? In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul informs us that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, people say, see, God blinds people. Pfft. Well, what chance do they have if God blinds them? That's not a just God. God's character is warped and crooked and because he's warped and crooked, he's disqualified from being judged, he's disqualified from being God, and therefore he has no right to judgment. You ever heard that spin before, that flip? By the way, God's really intimidated by that. Right? Again, we go. it's going after the character of God. He even uses Scripture to flip the picture. We know from John 8 that Satan is a murderer and a liar. And so it should not be surprising that when his lieutenant show up, this man of sin, he would be the same way and operate under the same principle. Daniel says this little horn, or man of lawlessness, will throw truth to the ground. In other words, he will stomp on it. In the vision of the fourth beast, Daniel says it was exceedingly strong and terrifying. And that it trampled truth to the ground, stomped on it with its feet. And uh, he says this little horn... Uh, would be uh, This man of lawlessness would be a man of intrigue, of deception, of flattery. Right? One of the ways to deceive you is to flatter you. Right? And extortion. Extortion, I want to talk about that for a second. Daniel 8, uh, 23 and 25 says, When transgressors have reached their limit. and NIV it says, When rebels have become completely wicked. Right? In other words, when the cup of the Gentiles is full. And sin reaches the, the rim when everything's become que- completely wicked. A king of bold face, uh, ESV says, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles. NIV says, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, shall arise. In other words, we're talking about somebody here who can play chess on multiple levels, all right? And knows how to play the political game. This title, stern-faced king, might sound familiar to you. Because it goes all the way back to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were known as a stern-faced people. If you look at the, uh, the pictures of them, uh, the, they were called the stern-faced people. And they were the ones who became masters. They are the ones who invented a lot of the stuff that we understand today um, in terms of torture, in terms of extortion, In terms of terror, if you think of the modern-day mafia, they were the starters of that kind of thinking, that way of trapping people into catch-22s that you can leverage them on. And they were known as the stern-faced people. Hitler studied the Assyrians to know how to do it. And so we're talking about when this person comes, he will be a stern-faced person and it says, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. We will come back to that next week. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In other words, no longer does truth matter. If you're deceitful, you get rewarded. We kind of we already live in that day, right? All right. Um, In his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, that's the Lord Jesus, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Therefore, because of that, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See? See? There there God goes again. There he goes. If you don't play his game by his rules, he spanks you. Oh, whoopee. I don't want to play that game. I refuse. I'm out. Again, Satan has painted a wrong picture of God. And this one says, well, you know, he's just going to punish people. I want to suggest something. This follows what Paul expanded on greatly in Romans 1. That if a people or groups of people reject the truth by suppressing it, the idea is you push it behind you. When you go to the doctors, he takes a tongue suppressor and he says what? Say ah, ah, right? And he suppresses your tongue. In this case, we're not suppressing a tongue, we're suppressing truth. In other words, what we know about God, we deliberately push behind us so that we can do what we want to do. We hide in deceit and get away with what we want to do. That's never happened here. Other churches... I've had a struggle with that. All right? And we push back. And God says when you do that, when we do that, then God lets you have what you want. And what Romans 1 says, he lets you have what you want and what you want destroys you. Okay? So God says when the culture tips and they all chase after everything but him and they tell him we don't want you. We don't want your rule. We don't want your law. We don't want your Messiah. We don't want your word. We especially don't like want your people. If you got rid of them for us, that would be wonderful. We'd bless you for that. When that happens, God sends them a delusion and lets them have what they want, and then what they want destroys them. All right? That's what Paul's telling the Thessalonian church. We're going to come back next week then and look at what Paul says to the Thessalonians after he's laid this out. So join me in prayer, would you? I'm going to ask uh, Zach to come up. He's got something special for Mother's Day. Let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you for walking through this. And uh, there's some powerful concepts here that uh, tell us there are things at work in our universe, in our world that are, are significant, that we have to pay attention to, and that we really have to pay attention to you. And Lord, we are like everybody else. We look at what's going around us and kind of get caught up in life and sometimes don't pay really good attention, and then suddenly we realize we've been distracted or lied to by our enemy. And, uh, Lord, we had other loves besides you. This is a great warning, Uh, just like Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, keep you as the first love. And, Lord, uh, the idea of... uh, we know the day of the Lord, your day, has not happened yet because these signs haven't revealed themselves. But, Lord, it certainly feels like it's closer. And I don't know exactly how it will play out. But we ask that you would help us, that you would grant us a grace appropriate for the day that you've asked us to live in and a wisdom to negotiate through what life throws our way as believers in this era and this generation. We seek you for that, Lord, Uh quantum computers intimidating the fact that that's merely a shadow of who you are and how you can look at the entire universe not just the people on this planet is a great encouragement you have things well in hand may we trust that with all our heart i pray this in your name amen